Welcome to episode one of Keeping It a Hundo with Matty Hundo. I'm your host, and episode one is titled Clean John. Make sure you download and subscribe to Keeping It a Hundo on iTunes or on the podcast app. I'd also appreciate it if you share it with your friends on Instagram or Facebook or MySpace or Black Planet or whatever else the kids are doing these days. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Keeping It a Hundo. I'm your host, Matty Hundo, and my guest today is my old friend, John. John has been homeless and living on the streets of Miami for over 40 years. We're going to talk to John today about his rough upbringing in Wichita, Kansas, that included living in a group home for troubled boys on a ranch in Texas, several years at a state mental hospital in Kansas, and how he escaped and sought refuge in the trap houses of Overtown in Miami. Thanks for joining me today, John. Your story is one that should be heard. Yeah, you know, my life is like uh, really, really fascinating because when I was, I remember, I remember my mother changing my diapers. That's how well my memory is, you know. I remember her putting me up in in the kitchen, in the sink, the kitchen sink, and it had like two sinks, you know, right together where you could take the faucet and you could switch it from this sink to this sink. She would set my butt in one sink and my feet, my knees propped up, my feet would be in the other sink and she'd, I remember her cleaning me and, and I remember her powdering my butt when she was finished, you know? And I mean, that's... Uh, I, I would, feel like I have a pretty good memory. And looking back, my memory doesn't start till I was about four or five years old. Yeah. You had to be younger than that unless you were wearing diapers. Well, I was still wearing diapers, so I don't know, two years old. Yeah. I don't know if babies wear diapers at the age of two, but so anyway. So what was, what was your relationship like with your mom and your dad? What was home life like? She was, like, really poor. She had a hard time feeding us, you know. I guess she lived off off the county, you know, her the rations or whatever they were given to her at that time. I mean, I'm just a baby. I don't know what it is. I remember one time I got hurt, you know. I was running in this in the house, and I tripped over two steps. And when I tripped, my chin hit this bedpost. She had a metal bed frame, and the posts were sawed off. Somebody sawed them off with a hacksaw, and my chin, it went up through my chin, and I got like, 14 stitches in my chin, you know, and I was only like two years old then. Tell me about uh, your hand. Me and my brother, he was two years older than me. We used to go over to these other kids' place, you know, like a block away, and we would we would throw things in this water pump. There was no water pump in a, in a back patio, a fenced-in back patio. And we went over there one day, and I went over and I walked over to the switch to turn the water pump on, but I remember hearing a noise. I turned the switch back off. And I went over to the pump and I started rolling the pulley, the belt on the water pump with my hand. And I told my brother, I said, go over now, flip it on. And when he did, it came on and my finger got caught in the belt and it was just like squashed it, you know. I remember going to the hospital and, and I sit in the waiting room waiting to see the doctor <coughs> for hours. And finally they, they sewed it up, sewed it back on and they waited like a month later, and they I went back to the hospital. They unwrapped it, and it was like rotten, you know. And I remember seeing the doctor come into the op, into the room uh, with a knife in his hand. And when I grabbed my finger, you know, to jerk away from it because I knew he was gonna cut it off, it squashed in my hand. It came off in my hand, you know. So I went through like four or five different operations. They was had to scrape it, gangrene. Gangrene, yeah, yeah, it had had rotten. It was. It was gone. So I remember going through four or five different operations. I remember him putting a mask over me because we're talking about like, like the the fifties, the that late fifties. They had yeah. gas probably. To ether. Put you to sleep. Yeah, they put me to sleep with ether, you know, because they didn't have injections back then. Yeah. And I remember him putting that mask over my head, and I, I couldn't I couldn't breathe right, you know, I was like I was suffocating, and I remember seeing this little machine next to me it had all these curves and angles and stuff on it and I kept every time I wake up after the operation I thought that I was inside that machine you know that was another world you know <coughs> but tell I me, remember 
tell me what your your relationship your parents relationship was like I didn't have a father my father was an alcoholic he'd always come home fighting and leave and we wouldn't see him for a month maybe I don't know longer but anyway I so remember pretty much your mom and then she had yeah that she was an alcoholic yet. too you know both of them were alcoholics and I remember one day when they were fighting and my my father was hitting my mother and it really made me mad and I walked up and just wham I clobbered him and you know a little kid so small so short that when I clobbered him I hit him right in the groins and he doubled over and I heard him oh <laughs> and I'll never forget that you know so what was school like for you I know you said you had a tough time growing up in school yeah I did when I when I I remember going to kindergarten yeah I remember that too my memory's like uh really unbelievable it even amazes me you know I remember going to kindergarten and then they put me in first grade and I remember I couldn't concentrate or understand what the teacher was telling me you know I had a, a learning problem and you knew pretty early on that you just you didn't feel like you were like the other kids right you I knew you were different right I, I couldn't understand you know what I what I was supposed to be the teacher was supposed to be teaching me and so I never concentrated on what she was saying. I just always daydreamed. And I actually flunked, flunked <laughs> the first grade. <laughs> yeah, I did. I flunked the first grade. I had to go back through the first grade again. So that set me off a year. Uh, I, never complete, I never completed the sixth grade. I dropped out when I was in sixth grade. So I was like a... School definitely wasn't for you. No. So I remember... When you were a kid, did you think about what you wanted to be when you grow up? Did you want to be a doctor? Did you want to be a football player? Did you want to be a truck driver? Did you have any ambitions? Did you have goals? Yeah, I wanted to play music, you know? You wanted to be a musician? Yeah. I wanted to be a drummer. What kind of music did you listen to when you were a kid? Rock and roll. Yeah, but this we're, we're talking about the 50s. I started listening to rock and roll in the 50s, you know? When I was... Uh, like I say, when I after I got my finger cut off, you know, I kept getting in trouble with my brother. My brother knew how to, he, had, he always had a bike, you know. He was like five years old, and he always had a bike. I was three. And I remember he kept stealing bicycles. At the age of three, my mother, I remember her putting this, me and my brother up for adoption. Everything was legal and everything, and we were in this children's home, you know. And when we were, we're Everything legally was done to where we would never go back to our mother again. And my brother kept telling me this, that we're never going to see mother again. And I, Let's run away. So at, let's at, run what away. Age, at what three. age? I was three. He was five. At that age, you got sent away. We were in a children's home, taken away from our mother because she put us up legally for adoption. So we were in the children's home waiting to be adopted. So did you ever get adopted? No. Matter of fact, when I was in this children's home, my brother kept asking me, let's run away, let's run away, you know. I'll get us back to our mother, but I wouldn't, didn't, kept telling him, no, no, I can't do that. I didn't really know what was going on. I'm only a three-year-old kid. How am I supposed to understand what's happening? I'm supposed to be the one look, look and learn, not, not say what's going on, you know. And you were born in 1956. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, I got COPD, so it bothers my lungs, you know? Yeah, I apologize for the coughing. Uh. Yeah. But anyway, I got in my first fight in this children's home with this kid. You know, he fattened my lip or blooded my nose or something. I can't remember which one. But anyway, I finally told my brother, said, okay, let's run away. So we did. We walked away from the children's home. And I remember my brother going up and knocking on this door and said something to these people, whoever is at the door. And he came out. And we got in his car, and he drove us home. And I remember a half a block from where my mother lived, he dropped us off. And I could never figure out why didn't he just take us to the, to the door. And I, I figured out that my brother, he's pretty smart for being five years old, didn't want the guys to talk to or be talking with our mother because then he might know that we had run away from this children's home. So... He duck and dodge happened to him finding that out. So we, what we did, we walked back, and our mother was surprised when she seen us stand at the door. She took us in. And the officials, when they finally found out we escaped from the children's home, uh, I guess the officials come and knocked on the door, 
of our mother's house, but she hid us. She didn't want to give us up, you know, but she was too poor to feed us or support us. So and you guys wanted to be with your mother. Yeah, absolutely. And even though she wasn't, she wasn't the best mom. She she had her issues. The only issues that my mother had is she was too poor to feed us or, or support us, and she okay. cared about us. There were other other any other issues. There were none, you know. Okay. Only thing is she couldn't have supported us, and she wanted to. She did it out of love, you know, and it's not an easy thing to accept if you love your kids to give them up so they'll have a better life, you know. But we didn't. We didn't know what was going on. But anyway, our mother, the officials come out, knocked on the door and said we had run away, that our kids, that your kids came up missing from this children's home. Do you, you know where they are? And she said, no, no, she hid us from them, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. But anyway, they couldn't find us. Of course, we were at home. Our mother was hiding us from them, you know. And finally, they made a, I mean, they made a, news bulletin on TV, newscast on the radio and everything, looking for these two kids they're missing and everything. If anybody sees them or to notify the authorities and stuff, you know. And anyway, finally they they they, they made a news bulletin on TV said if we can find these kids, we'll send them back to their mother. So you and talked a lot about your relationship with your brother. You you looked up to your brother. He was kind of your protector. Yeah, well he was my mother had five uh Five kids, yeah. I was the youngest, and she had her, the first kid she had, she was 17, and she was 42 when she had me. But from my father, she only had, my father and my mother only had me and my brother. The other three kids came from other fathers, you know? Okay. What's your relationship like uh, as you grew up with your brother? Did it remain close? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very and, definitely, but... And and where's your brother now? He's deceased. He died the same year my mother did in 87. The authorities finally released us when we were up for adoption, and we were back with our mother, okay? But by the time I got eight years old, this teacher came to my mother's house and talked with my mother about sending us away to this, this boys' ranch. It's like 36 miles out in the country from Amarillo, Texas, you know? And so we got all that done legally, and we, we got on a plane, a TWA. So do you think, you, you said you guys were pretty poor. Yeah. Who do you think paid for this stuff? Do you think it was maybe the government? It was state-funded? I have no idea. Because buying plane tickets wasn't cheap back then. We were out there for quite a while, about four or five years, I'd say. Tell me some of the good stuff you remember about being out there. Playing sports, meeting The food friends. was good. Uh, I mean, the food was like, mm, too, I've never ate anything as good as out there. They had everything for, for a person growing up. You said they know? had a rodeo out there. Yeah, yeah, I rode a rodeo. I rode what they called junior calves, you know. Played in basketball tournaments. Foot, uh, not football, but volleyball tournaments. Wrestling tournaments. Uh, I remember my dorm parent, he would always beat me with the belt, you know. I mean, these were like real cowboys, rednecks, you know. Cowboy boots, big wide belts, you know, with the cowboy buckle, you know. Sure. And he would always, every little thing he could, he could find, you know, he would beat me with it, take it back into the, back in the office. He had an office that adjoined to his apartment, you know. He'd take me to the office. And beat me with the belt, you know, all the time. He did all kinds of things. They had one guy in each room that would run the rest of the, the kids in the room. He would be like the boss, you know, and would have to have everything tip top folded, all our clothes folded in our locker, and uh, everything had to be just right down the line, or the dorm parent would spank us, you know. But this dorm parent, he did. He went a little beyond spanking. He would beat us, you know. You think he was he was hitting the other kids too? <coughs> oh yeah. yeah. But I don't know about the other kids. He picked on. He picked. He spanked me more than any other kid I know. Every day it seems like he I get a spanking from him, you know. But what I mean spanking is my my butt would be black. I have found a football in the bush. You know, I seen it when I walked by the bush. I seen a football, so I I got the football out. I took, I carried it to the cafeteria. See, they had a big long hallway in front with doors going into the cafeteria, and they had coat racks and shelves up there where you could put all your stuff 
where you while you're eating and stuff. So I put the football up onto the shelf, and they had like sections that each person would would always put their stuff in that same section, you know. So I had my little section, and that's where I put football. Well, the dorm parents seen that football there. He always he he knew that I kept wanting the football because. For some reason, somewhere they got money to save for us. You know, each inmate, each child, each child there would have a an account in his name, but he couldn't draw money out of it because the dorm parent had control over all that. You know, I kept telling him I won a football. You know, and he took me in the office. I remember he called me while I was out there working, waiting table. He called me to the office. He says, "Where'd you get the football?" You know insinuating that I stole it, you know. I told him, I said, it was in the bush over there on the way to work. He says, he kept calling me a liar, you know, and he kept he kept spanking me, you know. And I, I never broke down and told him I stole it because I never did steal it, you know. And finally he set me on his knee and he kept pinching the back of my legs with his fingers until it hurt and it bleeding. And I remember by the time he was finished, I never, never would admit to still in that football until finally I told him I did, you know, because my legs was just so black and blue all the way, all my whole butt, all the way down to my knees, the back of my leg was black and blue and bleeding and stuff. That's the only way he would stop is if you admitted to yeah, him, even yeah, if he didn't. Yeah, I was scared because he kept, he kept threatening me and stuff. I can't, I can't remember exactly what he was telling me, but whatever it was, I remember it was scaring me, you know. Yeah. So finally I told him I sold the ball. I remember after that happened, I went and I showed the chaplain my back of my legs and stuff, and he he got the man in trouble for it, you know. And I don't know what happened to him, but anyway, they had sent me back to my mother. My brother stayed there, but they sent me all they sent me all the way back to Wichita, Kansas. And you're you know? how old at this point? I was thirteen, just turned thirteen. So you're 13, back in Wichita. With my mother, yeah. And you really haven't been to school very much. No. And uh, what do Matter you... of fact, they started me back up in school because I went through special education when I was in this ranch. And I remember I was in the seventh grade now, you know, and I kept getting in trouble, and they suspended me from school indefinitely. <coughs> so I didn't have to go back to school, you know. And I love that because now I could just go out and do whatever I wanted to do, you know? Stealing bikes. Well, no, I didn't steal bikes then. But I remember when I was a kid, we stole so many. My brother taught me how to ride a bike, and he kept teaching me how to steal bikes, you know? Because back in the early, back in the, in the mid-50s, uh, people never locked their bikes. And I remember the police, we stole so many bikes and got caught so many times. Police finally bought us a bike, but they didn't buy me one. They bought my brother a bike, and they gave me one of those little, you put one foot on it with the handlebars, you push with the other foot, a scooter, you know? I said, damn, I, I want a bike like my brother got. But anyway. <laughs> so what did, What was the uh, first time you got in trouble with the police? The, the bikes, and then, but they never no, when they when, the, when they sent me back from the boys' ranch and I got suspended from school, I remember seeing my mother drink, you know? And I started smoking. Because I kept stealing cigarettes from my mother, you know. Finally, she says, don't steal my cigarettes, just get your own. <laughs> and I remember, well, she drinking beer. I never had drank any beer, but I stole a six-pack of Coors beer from the Safeway grocery store in Kansas. And I drank it, and I got drunk. I threw up and everything. And I didn't really like it, you know, but I did it again. I sold it again to see what what try to find out what was good about drinking beer, you know? And I got caught, and they they took me to jail. <coughs> and, excuse me, this jail was like eight floors in the air, up in the air. My first time, my first time being in jail, I uh, I got claustrophobia, you know? Every, every night, about 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, it would hit me. I'd be in this, in this jail, I'd be climbing the bar. I'd be so high up, my head would be squashed against the ceiling. And one night, the the, the jailer, we called him jailer, you know, big brass key and all that. He walked around, seeing me up there, and he says, you all right? I says, yeah, I think so. I says, I don't know what's wrong. Every night, I get this, this bad feeling. He says, oh, I know what it is. That's claustrophobia. 
He says, I'll talk to the officer in the daytime. See if he'll let you out to feed the sandwiches to the other juveniles, you know. But what good did that help, you know? Still, every night, even though I got a little room to move around, every night the phobia would still hit me, you know. I'd be up there climbing the bar. Ah, 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 I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. So I said, to hell with it. And I told the rest of the juveniles, you know, through the opening in the bars, I said, listen, tomorrow when I come out and feed sandwiches, I'm going to lock the guard up in the cell. I said, anybody who wants to go with me can go, you know. And sure enough, they had these old doors, you know. They would roll. They would slide open and slide shut, you know. And there was a control panel. They had these switches that you pull out and it would flip up. And then you'd roll this big wheel and it would open the door. Well, if you if you pull the switch on the door you want to open, and when, if you didn't roll the door all the way back, it wouldn't safety lock. So you could grab the door actually with your hand and pull it closed, you know. So... Sure enough, next day when I when they let me out, I gave all the sandwiches out. And when I got finished doing that, I came back around, and the uh, jailer always left the control box open in case I needed to take another juvenile out for some reason. You know, maybe the lawyer wanted to see him or something. You know, but anyway, I walked up to the control stand. I started popping the safety locks open, pop, 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 pop. And I started rolling the doors, hoping the jailer would come out. He says, what are you doing? I says, I'm letting everybody out. <laughs> and I walked up to him. I says, I'm locking you up. And I grabbed him, and I started dragging him down the catwalk to the front of the door. And I threw him in the cell. Then I pulled the door closed on him, you know. And then I went back to the control panel. I safety locked this door. And then I opened up the other, other four cells, you know. You did this by yourself. Yeah. And... The jailer had a, there was a fire escape door that the jailer had a key to. He always had to have a key to it because it was some kind of fire regulation, you know. I mean, what's going to catch on fire? All the whole place is steel and concrete, sure. you know. I mean, they wouldn't let us smoke or nothing. Anyway, four or five of us got broomsticks, and we went around on the catwalk. We threatened, threatened to kill him if he didn't give us a key, and he gave us a key. So we went, we went out the fire escape floor to the stairwell, and there was like eight flights of stairs. So you're talking about 16 stair, stairs we had to go down. And when we got down to the bottom, we opened the door. There they were, the whole goon squad, about 14 officers waiting for us. What happened is one of the other juveniles that was in the cell came out and went to the jailer's uh, office, and he pushed the panic button. <coughs> Take your time. Yeah, and... That was when we were on our way down the stairs, you know, eight flights, of eight eight stories up, you know. He pushed the panic button, so the goo squad was waiting for us. So he snitched us. on you guys. Yeah, he snitched on us. Yeah, Snitches did. get stitches, John. Well, anyway, <laughs> he did, not back then. <laughs> they, they took and locked us all up in this dark room with only a hole in the floor, no bed or nothing. I mean, we, there was like eight of us in there. So what, you're supposed to go to the bathroom in the hole? Yeah, that's what we had to do now back in the... Back in those days, that's what happened. You know, we're talking about in 69, 70, yeah. Well, anyway, they charged every one of us with kidnapping, attempted murder, battery on a Leo, attempted escape, and a whole lot of other stuff. I mean, we we were facing like 60 years, you know. This is the Wichita City Jail. Yeah, county jail. County yeah. jail. Yeah, county jail. But anyway, the state, what happened was the state actually found me not guilty by reason of insanity because claustrophobia is a temporary state of mental disorder, you know. And they sent me to the state hospital. I'm 13. And when I got there, <coughs> they started pumping me full of tranquilizers and stuff. I mean, every time I stand up, I pass out. So I had to escape. I tried to, I tried to run away, you know. And... I got caught. They locked me up in this six-by-four concrete room with this foam rubber mattress, an old green army blanket, and a two-gallon bucket to crap in. That was my bathroom. Wow. If I had to crap, I'd be in the bucket. If I had to do it at 8 o'clock in the morning, I had to live with the smell until 10 o'clock at night because that's the only time. Every night, 10 o'clock, I could come out, empty the bucket. Like five steps from there, there was a bathroom. I could empty it in and flush the toilet. Did you try then, to train yourself to go later in the day so you wouldn't have to smell it all day? Well, back then you didn't plan that out. No, <laughs> I mean I'm only 13. I don't know. When I had to go, I had to go. So, 
hey, I wasn't smelling nobody else's, only mine. All right. <laughs> Thank God, you know. But anyway, this, this room was like, you couldn't see, no, there was no windows. It was in the middle of this big brick building. It was two-floor, two-story brick building. You know, they had all these nuts up there. I mean, they acted like really weird. I've seen some weird things, you know, people. And they let me out like two weeks after my first time trying to run away, you know. They let me out. And they, I remember them giving me a shot once a week, and they called it time release prolixin, you know. And... They give me several other different kinds of drugs, you know, but every time I stand up, I pass out, and I couldn't stand it. It was like really messing with my head, so I had to get away from this place. I ran away again, and finally, I made it to the highway, and I was hitchhiking, you know, and this truck driver stopped and gave me a ride. He said, what was the name of the place where the, the state hospital was? It was Larned State Hospital. It was in, state yeah, hospital. there was like a little town three miles from there. That was called Larned, Kansas. That's okay. where the state hospital got the name, Larned. So you and escaped again. You escaped from pretty much every place anyone's ever locked you in. Yeah. You escaped? Yeah, we escaped from the, <laughs> the children's home when we were three years old, yeah. And the truck driver said he was going to Wichita, and I said, well, the state hospital's like 180 miles from Wichita, and that's where my mother lived. And he dropped me off at my mother's house. But... Uh, I was still 13. I was still 13, you know, when I had run away and made it back to my mother's place. And I remember smoking my first joint with my brother, you know? And I had got sick when I came down. I started slurred speech. I blurred vision, started drooling. I drank a cup of water. I threw it up right away, and then I started going in convulsions. So my mother had to take me to the emergency room. And when she took me to the emergency room, they found out that I was a runaway from the state hospital. State hospital came 180 miles within an hour and got me and took me back. Well, I was unconscious when, when they took me back. <coughs> I remember when I woke up, I was strapped to a bed, five points, both arms, both yep. legs, and my waist. And a doctor was checking my vital signs, and he made a statement to me. He said, John, we didn't know you were taking heroin. What the hell's heroin? What's he talking about? Let alone, I just smoked my first joint, you know? But anyway, they locked me back up in this six-by-four concrete room until I was 17 years old. And there was no windows in that room. You couldn't talk to anybody. It was like total silence. I didn't see a blade of grass or daylight from the age of 13 to 17 years old. Finally, and it wasn't until later on in my life that I figured out exactly what happened is they were doing illegal drugs testing on me morphine drugs and that shot they were giving me once a week was not time release time release prolixin how can you give a shot and make it time release you know i mean you can do time release with a pill but not in a shot they locked me back up in this room and they left me in that room because they were scared that i might have knew something about what they were doing and might tell somebody or either the hospital found out when my mother took me to the emergency room. But anyway, evidently nobody knew about it, so they kept me locked up in that room until 17. They took me off of it, you know, so it was out of my system and everything. But anyway, they finally let me out. At but the you were going of, through withdrawals. That's why you were sick when you went back yeah, home. Yeah, when they brought, when they come and got me. How long do you think they were they were shooting you with heroin? Maybe eight months or so. And that was once a week? Once a day? Once a week, yeah. Once a week? Yeah. For eight months? Yeah. But that's why I never knew what, 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 but it was like a very uncomfortable sickness, you know? And I I lost conscience when I went to convulsion. My mother took me to emergency room. But anyway, <coughs> when I turned 17, they finally let me out of seclusion. That's what they called it. A six-by-four concrete room. And... No magazines, nothing, you know? I mean, total silence. Just just the room, the mattress, the blanket, it's, and the bucket. To give you an idea of what time this happened was when Western Union first came out with this, what they call questionnaire. They called it questionnaire. You didn't need ID to, to receive money from people who wanted to send you money. All you needed was like a secret code. Well, I had my little finger cut off when I was four years old, and... A light bulb lit up in my head. I was sitting in the day room with all these other nuts, you know? And when I see that commercial, boom, 
a light bulb lit up in my head. I said, well, if I could get to the town three miles away, call my mother, she could send money Western Union and use my little finger for the code, you know, and I could buy a bus ticket and make it back home, you know. I wouldn't get caught because they had security who patrolled all the roads and highways and stuff around the hospital, you know, so if one of the nuts escaped, they'd find them. Well, sure enough, I said, I have to get away from all these drugs they're giving me. And I escaped, and I, I, I went through the fields. I never went down the, the roads, the dirt roads or the highway to get to the town three miles away. I went through fields, climbed over barbed wire fences, walked through uh, uh, <coughs> cows, around cows, uh, horses, and all kinds of shit, you know. But finally, I made it to this town. And I called my mother, you know, and I told her, I says, look, Western Union has a new thing called questionnaire. You can send me some money, I can get a bus ticket, and I'll make it back home. And she did. She, she wired me money, and I went, I, I picked it up, and I bought a bus ticket, and I made it back to Wichita. I was 17 years old, you know. And I, I, I figured, well, I need to go to, I need to go to, to, away from here because they're going to find me, you know. I didn't want to go back to state hospital. And I figured, well, Florida, I heard Miami's warm all year round. I could go there and sleep outside, you know. <laughs> for, for somebody with a lack of resources, yeah. you grew up, you know, poor, yeah. uneducated. Yeah. You're a very resourceful guy. I came here. I came, I came to Miami when I was 17 years old, running away from the state hospital, you know. And I stayed homeless all those years, you know. I got... You got to Miami in 1973? 74. 74. Yeah, and I came to Tobacco Road. And I really... I never left the neighborhood because I liked Tobacco Road. Everybody from the bar... It's the oldest bar in Miami. They were, like, cool, you know. They smoked weed, did all their little things. I did, too. I did drugs, you know, back in my young days. But, uh, yeah... I used to drive a car. I got a driver's license. I drove a car for somebody, you know, and he was a booster, what they call a booster. He stole out of shopping centers, you know, and then sold the clothes. And every time he paid me to take him to each store, he'd steal something and sell it. He'd give me some money. So, so you were the wheel man. I was the wheel man, yeah. right, yeah. And I kept seeing him shooting up these, this, this drug. I didn't know anything about it or what it was. It was cocaine is what he's shooting up. And curiosity got the best of me. Like they say, curiosity killed the cat. Well, it sure did me too. Because I told him, I said, why, why don't you do me one time? I want to see what it's like, you know? And he did. He shot me up one time. And let me tell you something. I got so high. I says, I'm hooked. Line and sinker off just one hit, you know? And, and you guys would shoot up and then go do burglaries he would, and whatnot? No, it wasn't a burglary. He'd still, still out of the coats and clothes and stuff, you know, expensive jackets and shit. But didn't you eventually and then he had a step it up a little bit to the to well, Coral Gables, cars and things like that? Yeah, but after after I lost my car and stuff, you know, and then I was hooked on coke. I was shooting coke myself. And I used to start going over to Coral Gables, the rich neighborhood, and I would break into these conversion vans and steal out the electronics, you know, and uh, sell them, you know. And I don't feel good about it, you know. And it's been over 25, almost 30 years since I've done that, you know. And that's how I used to support my habit. But anyway, I I finally got off of drugs, you know. Here I am, 60 years old, and I finally made it off drugs. Doctor told me, he says, you're going to, you're, if you keep smoking, you ain't going to live another year. And he told me, he says, you got COPD, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That's from smoking crack, smoking cigarettes, smoking weed, and all that, you know. Let's uh, let's go back to when you were when you were shooting up. You would go over to Overtown. That's when yeah, you started going. Yeah, there. I used to go to Overtown. I buy these dime caps, you know. Well, anyway, Tobacco Road was nothing. It was in a rich neighborhood, you know. And I remember all these people rich folks that would come there, you know, to drink and stuff, was always asking me, where can I get some coke? Where can I get some coke? Well, there wasn't no coke in that neighborhood, not then. And I used to say, well, I know where to get it, you know. 
but you have to trust me. And I built I built the reputation as being trustworthy, you know. And I was actually one of the coke men at Tobacco Road that when somebody needed it, I was the one they'd come to, you know. And they'd give me $100. they want five five bags. I'd charge them four bags. I'd give them four bags, you know, which... A dime. They only they had they had dime bags, and I'd buy a dime bag, and they would they it would cost them twenty five dollars for the bag. They give me a hundred dollars, so I bring them back four dime bags, and then they pay me like fifty dollars for going to get it. So you I was support. <laughs> you do the math. I was uh, making out pretty good, you know. And did these I, people know you were homeless? No. 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 Uh, they, they just thought know. you were one of the guys hanging out. Yeah, they just thought I was the local dope boy. Yep. <laughs> and hey, they were all happy. They kept coming back and everything. I never ripped. ripped they were they were off. too scared to go over to Overtown. Oh, of course. They didn't you know? have the connections, and you there was had nobody there. around there that sold it. So I was like the winner. I was in it, you know. And I made a lot of money, and then I just blew it all, just doing it up, you know, smoking it up, shooting it up. And Did you have a specific spot you used to go, or you used to go to different? Well, I went to different traps. You know, that's what they call it. Every every dope boy in Overtown selling dope had their own little spot. You know, nobody else could sell dope there. And then two blocks away, be another spot. You know, you were telling me that <coughs> back in the seventies or eighties when you were shooting up, they called them shooting galleries over there. Yeah, they call them shooting galleries. Yeah. But yeah, now they're trap houses. I remember one time I was in the shooting gallery and I just got out of jail and I figured, well, instead of sticking myself twice, I'll just put two dimes in it, mix it up once, draw it all up, shoot half of it, and then when I come down off that buzz, shoot the other half of that. And no, I don't work like that. Because when you shoot that first half, you get the feeling so good, fuck it. You just slam the rest of it. And that's what uh, I remember hitting my head on the back of the bathtub. And they carried me across the road tracks and threw me over in the bush because uh, they thought I was, I, go, I thought I overdosed and was going to die. But they don't want that blood on their hands. Yeah, they, they, no, they didn't want to have to have to get caught, you know. Do you know how lucky you are to be alive right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm lucky. Very lucky. And I got hit by a bus 2012. Uh, yeah, a state attorney owned this bus that hit me, and they don't want to give me nothing for it. They say, oh, well, because my lawyer filed the lawsuit too late, I'm only going to get $5,000 out of the deal, but the state don't even want to give me that. And the judge actually, in the long run, would have dismissed it, and I wouldn't have got a penny if I didn't take $5,000, you know? You know, I spoke to a couple of attorney friends of mine, yeah. and they, they had the same question that, that I was wondering. When you got hit, you went to the hospital and got admitted? Yeah. Did you get drug tested? I wasn't on drugs. I, I had got picked up for panhandling. I was in jail all night that night so you until the next morning. So you did system? Well, even if I had it in my blood, don't mean that I was high on it. But, did they, but did they test you, do you think? That no, might be no, one of they didn't. Things. No, okay. they didn't. Even if they would have, it still wouldn't matter because I was in jail all night. You know, until I went to, to court the next morning to see the judge, and he dismissed it. You know, let me out. So, how many times do you think you were <coughs> you were in Miami Dade County Jail? I can't remember. I I've been in prison five times. Five bids in state prison. Yeah. What were those for? Burglary. All burglary. Breaking in a van. Yeah. One of them was battery on a Leo. What's it? What's a Leo? Battery on a Leo. What's that? Battery on a police officer. You call him a Leo? They call him Leo's law enforcement officer. Oh, I see. Leo. Okay. Yeah, law enforcement officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could be a security officer too, you know. Yep. But yeah. anyway, I never, I never jumped on this officer. I went, I went to Publix grocery store one day. I wasn't looking too good, you know, looking, looking pretty homeless. Yeah. And this off-duty officer walked up to me. All he had on was a black jumper. And that's it. He says, you can't go in the store. I says, what do you mean I can't go in the store? He says, they don't want you people in here. He says, I told him, I says, I come in here every day and buy buy food. Well, you can't go in. I said, let me speak to the supervisor. He says, look, asshole, I am the supervisor. I said, fuck you. I turned around and walked off. And he followed behind me until I got 
got around the corner of the store and then he pepper sprayed the shit out of me, uh, emptied a whole can of pepper spray on my face. I remember when he had me handcuffed or when I was rubbing my eyes, he sprayed my hands so when I rubbed my eyes, it would just get in my eyes. Uh, he pulled the back of my pants up and sprayed it all down in my ass and everything, the pepper spray. <laughs> I've been they, sprayed. I know it hurts. Yeah, it they last almost 24 hours. Oh, man, they emptied the whole can on me. They took me to the emergency room and everything. So this was over at the same Publix that I've seen you at for years? Brickle Publix? Thir- yeah, yeah. And... How long Not ago that did one, that but the one over on 13th Street. Okay, I know that it's one. Prickle neighborhood still. You know? What? Uh, how long ago was that incident? That was in 2002. Okay. Yeah. 2002 is when that happened. Anyway, I, I stayed in jail 11 months, and they after my arraignment, I never went back to see the judge for like eight, nine months. I never seen a judge. I just stayed in the in the room. They kept setting it off without calling me out to see the judge. You know, they made me an offer when I was first there to give me sixty days. I just turned it down because I told them no. I said I didn't do it. The officer said I spit on him. I didn't spit on him. I never did spit on him. Oh yeah, they said uh, I spit on him. He calls that battery. You know. But anyway, they were just going to ride me out for two or three more years. I would have sit in that jail fighting the case. What's, so the, they, what's the longest bid you did in prison? Three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah. And where was that? In Putnam County. Putnam County. Yeah. No, that no, was nothing, for burglary. Uh, nothing crazy in there? No, I never did nothing. Nothing Kept to yourself? I never did nothing like robbery or, or hurt anybody or anything. It was just burglary. And then the one battery on Leo, that was a lie. And I had to take a uh, guilty plea on that in order to get out. I had spent, remember, 11 months fighting the case in the jail. And they said, well, we'll give you a year and a day in prison if you want to plead guilty to it. Well, that meant that I would go to the state uh, South Florida Reception Center. I would get my prison number, you know, and... I'd be released because I had all the time in in the county jail already on a year and a day. So they let me out. And <clears throat> I was still smoking crack for a long time, for a long time. And then finally when the doctor told me, he says, you, if you don't stop smoking cigarettes or whatever you're smoking, you're going to die within a year. So I quit. Quit everything. Quit cigarettes. Quit smoking weed, crack. Cracks cocaine, that's all it is, you know. It's so pretty, you, you were shooting base. up for, what, 10 years, 15 years? Uh, quite a few years, yeah. And then you but stopped doing that. What I made you stop doing, doing that? Because I couldn't hit a vein. Ran out of veins, they all collaped. Right, yeah. And yeah. then you move on to the next one. Yeah. So in I the 80s smoking. when crack got big and cheap. And, and Yeah, that was like in the 80s, 84. 80s, huh? Sometime in the 80s. Let me tell you something. Crack, crack is the same same as freebased. The authorities gave it the name crack to make it look worse than freebased, you know? Yeah. Um, You've mentioned your brother, and you've told me you lost your brother and your mother in the same year. Very difficult year for you. Oh, yeah, 1987, yeah. That's the year I was released from prison in 87. Yeah. My first time. Wow. So your first year out of, first time in prison, you get out, and your mother and brother. Yeah, well, I went to prison like in 85 or so. How yeah. How did your brother die? He was in the streets like you? No. He kept messing with hookers out there, you know, and he caught AIDS from one of them. In, uh, in Kansas? In Houston, Texas. In Houston. Yeah. <coughs> I remember one time he he told me, he says, I'm going to die soon. I got AIDS. And then I started crying. And he said, I'm just kidding you. So, and then later on, I found out that he was dying from AIDS, that he wasn't kidding. Do you think he said that because he saw how upset you were? Yeah, he seen he, me crying. He, yeah. And so then he told me that, it was, that he was just kidding me. Did you know what AIDS were at the time? I knew it was a bad disease that was starting to, to go around, you know? That did was you, like when it first came out. Did you, know? you hear about people in the streets in Miami dying from it that maybe you knew from 
you know, doing drugs. Yeah. It's a, you know. Yeah, I did. Something that's very common. And I, I did. did my brother uses. caught it from hookers, so I never messed with the hookers when I was doing my drugs, you know. Yeah. Never. Nah. And then I never, I never shared needles, so I never got no diseases. Well, what about your, your, your own love life? You've had girlfriends in the past. Oh yeah, I'm. I had my feel, you know. Never been married. One time I was married, but it was like just a quick thing, six months. Well, you went down it. to the courthouse and. Yeah, I got a divorce. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about your your last girlfriend. Well, that'd been a long time ago. She was just another crackhead, you know. And you felt like she yeah. was just in it for the crack, right? You kept her high, and she yeah. stayed with you. Yeah. And if you couldn't keep her high, I fell she... for her, and then she kept using me. So finally, I got rid of her. You ever see yeah. her around anymore? No. Uh huh. In your days on the street, did you have people you considered friends, other other homeless people, or did you kind of keep to yourself? Yeah, I used to go and steal from the rich people, like I said back in the days when I was still shooting coke, and. All these people that were homeless, living on the street, smoking, getting high and stuff, they kept following me all around because I, I, I made a lot of money, you know, doing what I did. And I, I had a heart, you know, I kept giving them drugs, dope, passing it out. I, sometimes I felt like I was the Pied Piper, <laughs> you know. What I find interesting yeah. is a lot of people discuss other homeless people I've, I've spoken to or, or heard interviews with. They mentioned how ending up on the streets was rock bottom for them. I feel like for you, it was almost a relief to get freedom. It was. And you, you want to know what really happened is being locked up in that room. You got to understand that when a when a kid becomes an adolescent, that's when his mind is starting to be shaped and formed. All I could do was pace back and forth and create my own world in there. You know to keep, keep my sanity. I mean, I never seen daylight or a blade of grass from the age of 13 to age of 17. I never spoke to nobody. I never had no friends. I never had schooling. I had nothing. Just like when you pick that seashell up and you hold it to your ear and it goes, that's all it was, you know? So you learned how to cope uh, being alone, ways yeah, to entertain I became, yourself. I became a good actor and a singer because I'd pace back and forth, create my own world. Many times I would I would I would play the role as a judge. I would play the role as my my mom. I would play the role as the prosecutor, and I would convict those motherfuckers. I hang them by the nuts for what they were doing to me. You know, my mind grew to want freedom more than anything in this world to get out of that room. So that's why I guess I came to Florida so I could sleep outside all year round and just be free. You know, when when did you? Realize and accept the fact that you're going to live as a homeless man. Do you remember the moment that you, you kind of just said, "This, this life, this is what my life is going to be." Yeah, when I left and got away from that hospital and came down here. But you never saw that's having I, a home with a white picket fence and a wife and no, kids as a, as an option for you. No. Why is that? Because I wanted to be free. You know, it's only a natural instinct. When anybody has whatever he wants, he's happy. What else does he want? So what what brings you joy in life? What are the things when you were homeless that brought you joy? Getting another hit. That was the most important thing every day. For a long time, yeah. From one hit to the next. What were some of the nicest gifts you ever received when you were on the street as far as did anybody ever hand you hundred dollar bills <laughs> this limo was up there you know and it was dark tinted windows the driver had the window rolled down a little bit i walked past the limo as soon as i as soon as i got past it with my cup somebody called me and i turned and looked and the, the back window on the limo was rolled down and he says come here and there's two black guys in the back seat and then the, the driver up front the chauffeur and this guy pulled his wallet out, and he took two $100 bills out. He took out, a, no, he took out a 20, the first guy, and he stuck it in my cup. And then the black guy sitting next to him pulled his wallet out. And when he pulled his out, he took out two $100 bills and put them in my cup. 
I was so happy. <laughs> Man, I was so happy. I went inside McDonald's, had me the, the most expensive order on the menu. <laughs> and I flashed at them because they see me the every McRib? day. They see me everything. <laughs> they see me out there every day, panhandling change. I come and I show them, a, show them what their guys just give me, you know? <laughs> so w that leads me to my next question. What was it like being one of the only homeless white men in Miami? Because you don't see a lot of that around here. Yeah, it was either Spanish or, or black. You yeah. Know? So do you feel like it, it was tougher for you? I never, you know, let me tell you something. I never, I always stayed to myself. I, I never got to know the other people. Did what I could do to get rid of them if they were, like, trying to squeeze into my life, you know. But now I have a story for you. Yeah. Uh, about five years ago. Mm -hmm. I was coming home one night walking through Brickell. Yeah. Uh, the listeners probably don't know, but I've known John for seven or eight years now. Uh, we live in the same neighborhood. He lives, well, <coughs> when I say live, um, yeah. he, was, he was sleeping on the street in my neighborhood as mm -hmm. long as I've lived here, which is almost eight years now. And one night I was walking home through Brickell, and I saw a commotion going on behind Tobacco Road. And John was in a fight with what appeared to me another homeless man. And John was just trying to protect his territory where he lived yeah. and was trying to take a piss. Yeah. And the guy had come over. I don't know if he was trying to, trying to peep at John while he was doing his business <laughs> or what. But I heard John telling him, you know, Stop, leave me alone. Stop looking at my dick. <laughs> Heard all types of stuff. So I came yeah. over and told the guy to, to get lost. This is John's spot, and you probably don't remember. Do you blame anybody for your situation? If I was to blame anybody for the situation, it have to be that state hospital. Fair enough. Do you have any regrets for things you've done in life? Yeah, I do. I regret doing what I did, just starting out, stealing from the rich people over in Coral Gables to support my my habit and I, I still feel bad about that even every day that I'm alive now I still feel bad about that you know but that I quit many years ago it's been like 25 years that's great and you've you've managed to to eat and get high for that many years yeah now it's been yeah. almost a year since it's been over a year I've been completely clean over a know? year so I, I turned John on to uh, the podcast Dirty John. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, the name of this episode is going to be Clean John. I don't know if he knows that <laughs> yet. But this is the Clean John yeah, episode. Yeah. Uh, you got There's Dirty John's John, now we got Clean John. Clean and sober, and he's yeah. actually um, found temporary home yeah, at the Camilla's, uh, Camilla's house. house is, uh, it's a homeless shelter. You know, I'm, when I got hit by the bus in 2012, it crippled me, you know. Yeah, it did a lot of damage to me physically, so... Right now, I haven't. I hadn't been able to get disability because I never had no ID. Matter of fact, for ten years I tried to get identification, and since I'm from out of state, it was like an impossible situation. And I called the homeless hotline. This is ten years after I've been trying to get it, you know. So I applied for disability. I'm trying to get that now. And the lawsuit. I filed a lawsuit against the state attorney's office. They're the ones who owned the bus that hit me. The only thing that I'm going to be able to get is five thousand. I tried to get more. They said, no, we're not going to do it. The judge is going to dismiss the case eventually because my lawyer waited too long to file it. I'm hoping you can take this 5000 and turn it into a, an apartment for yourself. Well, I'm going to actually what I, what I have in, in mind is to just put that in the bank and keep it there. Well, if you can stay and in Camilla's house. If I can, yeah, if I can stay in the Camilla's house until I start disability, if they give it to me, you know, you might be able to afford an apartment with disability alone. Yeah, I use that to to and just keep the five. So in there what in I like is you you have life goals now. Yeah, and yeah. they're achievable. Yeah, you put yourself in a better situation. You've been in jail, prison, mental hospitals, adoptions, adoptions, child children's homes, protective services, yeah, foster, child protective services. What do you call it? Foster homes. Were you ever scared? I went through a lot of things that was scary. I mean, too many things I can't even begin to go there with it, you know. Get Every time I high. went in Overtown to buy drugs, I was scared. 
scary. They're going to rob you. You ain't fixing to give up your money. You, you, you're an addict. You got to have your drug, you know, so they got to hurt you to get your money. You're going to make them go to that point, you know. One of the nicest gifts anybody ever gave you, you had possession, and you still have possession, of a Louis Vuitton blanket. Oh, yeah. How, yeah, does, I was how does a guy like yourself end up with a Louis Vuitton blanket? I, You know, I was sleeping, and this lady and her husband evidently pulled up right where I was sleeping, stopped, and the lady got out. She covered me up. I was asleep, and I didn't even know it until I felt something on me. And I looked up, and this lady's covering me up with this blanket. And I, I told her, I says, thank you, bless your heart. And I never knew what this blanket was. I figured it was just another old blanket, you know. This somebody just didn't need to cover me up with it. But you anyway, had no idea how much it cost. No, I never, never heard of Louis Vuitton until <laughs> after that. But anyway, for two weeks, I laid out there on the sidewalk with my my blanket that I would lay on. My big, it was like a comforter that I used to, for a mattress, and I cover up with the blanket. Well, I would fold it up and leave it right there on the sidewalk. If I had to go on my bike to the store to get something to eat, I would leave the blanket there. And, you know, for two weeks, nobody ever took that blanket. John recently my... found Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. He has a cell phone. Yeah. And uh, he's like <laughs> yeah, a caveman. Yeah, well, I got clean who... after a while. I went and got the phone, you know? He's like a caveman who discovered fire. He's, he's <laughs> right. really enjoying That's technology. It. Yeah, huh? I posted a picture of it on Facebook. I said, this is my house. My only vice is money. Because <laughs> it's been like almost a year now that I was clean. Some girl responded back and says, that's a fancy house you got there. You know, she says, I like that blanket, you know. She says, that's, a, that's an expensive blanket. And I says, oh, yeah. She says, yeah, that's a Louis Vuitton. I says, well, I didn't, I didn't know anything about Louis Vuitton. And I says, what? It's like looking like any old regular blanket. I looked it up on Google, and it showed me an identical picture of that same blanket, $1,500. I said, what? And I left that thing out there on the sidewalk for two weeks, and nobody ever stole that blanket? I'll never get rid of that blanket. And let me tell you something. I, every, night, every night I cover up with that blanket, I don't want to get out from under it the next morning. <laughs> that thing is so comfortable, it's unreal. If you were on death row and you could pick one meal to have, what would be your final meal? You know, when I was at this boys' ranch, they used to have a breakfast. And it consisted of peanut butter that was warmed up. And they mixed caro syrup with it to make it real sweet. They would give you a platter of buttered toast and they would give you a bowl of scrambled eggs, all right? And we used to take the buttered toast and we put the scrambled eggs on top of the toast and we pour that warm peanut butter over the eggs. <laughs> and that's what I would have right okay. there. I, and that I think, would be my last meal. I think meal. that's an example of one of those meals that reminds you of your, I don't know, of a happy time or a happy place. Maybe. It was, like I said in, before, they fed you too good at that ranch. They did feed you good. The only bad thing about it was getting beat every day by the dorm parents. Yeah, that's the way I made my breakfast, and it was good. Yeah, it was good. Do you have any advice for people out there that may be going through some of the things that you went through? You know what I learned? I laid out on the sidewalk with all my addictions, addicted to cigarettes, addicted to crack, smoking weed and all that. And I laid out there on the sidewalk, and I stopped. And I did it without any, any help. I did it without a crutch. I did it without a program. And I learned that if you use a program, the program ain't going to stand on your two feet. You're going to have to learn sometimes to stand on your own two feet by yourself because the program ain't going to do it for you. And I learned that if you stand by yourself and you quit all your, all your vices, you build a solid foundation, you're never going to go back to drugs or whatever it is. Like, I'm never going to go back. I'll never smoke. I'll never do, get high again in my life. I found other highs, you know, like electronics. You know, I'm, I'm like into electronics now. I love it. I, love <laughs> it. I got a phone, a Bluetooth speaker. I put in a basket on my bike. And I got a, I got a, 
I got a stereo system just like the cars got now. I can boom I can boom down the down the road like everyone else, you know. <laughs> I don't think John realizes this. Um, I haven't really told him this, but out of all the years I've known him, I've been trying to help him as much as I can, uh, bringing him clothes and bringing him. Food. Oh yeah, he's he's brought me so. He, this man has given me so much. I can't even begin to verbally describe it, you know? The shoes he's given me. John's got some of my Jordans on now. Yeah, uh -huh. He I, lost a pair at the laundromat. Be, I was a little disappointed. Yeah, but I got them on. Got I got his ones. jeans on, too. <laughs> yeah, I do. But the reason why I bring that up is uh, out of everything I've given you, everything you've given me by seeing the improvement in yeah. your life and seeing you get better and get healthy and, and you're not on drugs anymore no you're not on the street no that 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 makes me feel so good I'm, I'm really proud of you I only have one worry now is the Camilla's house their their regulation is that a homeless person can stay there for the length of three months I'm just worried about maybe Social Security turning me down and me not getting disability I have to sleep on the street again but well, if I if if it comes down to that I'm strong, though. I'll never go back to drugs or anything. Last question for you, buddy. Yeah. Do you realize how resilient you are? I don't know the meaning of resilient. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll, uh, we'll sign off on that one. All right. Okay. And uh, continue inspiring me and other people, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode one of Keeping It a Hundo with Matty Hundo. Please make sure you download and subscribe to Keeping It a Hundo. You can find episodes of Keeping It a Hundo on the podcast app or on iTunes. You can also find me on Instagram at Matty Hundo. I'll be posting pictures with each of my guests. Next week, I'll be in Jersey City talking to Big East Hoops legend Terry DeHair. Thanks for listening.